We're going to pick up our reading again from Isaiah 47. And just a couple of things to be looking out for. Um, we're returning to a message that Isaiah has spoken before. So he's talking about um, idols, particularly the idols of Babylon, but also showing how he distinguishes himself from idols in that he speaks and then he's able to make what he says happen. So a couple of things we're looking out for. It says this. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. And your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever. So you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment in one day. A loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you've laboured from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have laboured, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, 
but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I brought him and he will prosper in this way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from the rock. He spit the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Well, in a moment we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just mention a few things. The first is there'll be a question time immediately after the sermon. So do anticipate that and be ready with your questions. Another is the sermon outline is there for your use. 
uh, if it's helpful. Finally, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that we're reading today and exploring. As we reflect on this, might we appreciate that you are the God who speaks and what you says happens. There is no one who can compare to you because you are distinct from this creation and you rule over it. And yet at the same time, you deliver a people who've profaned your name and because, but because you're able to deliver them, we can put our trust and hope in you. Amen. Well, Bel and Nebo are the gods of Babylon. And at the minute, they're looking quite good. Because with the help, with their help, the Babylonians have defeated every nation. No one's been able to stand against the Babylonians. There's been no one who has prevailed. Babylonian, or Babylon, has become the great superpower. And all this success can be attributed to the gods Bel and Nebo. That is apart from the fact that none of this has yet happened. Babylon hasn't defeated every nation. They haven't taken everyone into captivity. And they haven't become the great superpower. None of this has happened. What we have recorded here is a message from God about what will take place, not what has taken place. And this means we start to see this in a new light. All of a sudden, our attention is taken away from the apparent, apparent impressiveness of Bel and Nebo and their role in suppressing every other nation. And our focus is turned to the God who is describing what will take place, but he's doing it years before the actual events happen. That is to say, if Bel and Nebo were able to raise the nation of Babylon up to become the greatest nation of them all, that would be a great feat. But it is a feat that pales into insignificance when it's compared with the God that doesn't merely make his nation the greatest superpower, but is able to lay out the facts before they happen. The God who describes how Babylon will suppress the nations years before it happens is more remarkable than the gods that cause Babylon's success. But then this exposes a further weakness to the gods of Babylon. How can Yahweh know that Babylon will become the great nation? Well, you can only truly know that something will take place if you have the power to make that which you predict happen. 
We're not intended to be impressed that God predicted something that other gods achieved before it happened. We're meant to realise, in reality, the gods played no part in it at all. The reason God could say it would happen is because he was prepared and able to make it happen as and when he planned it. Where does that leave the gods of Babylon? Well, the gods of Babylon are left exposed. Far from being able to help the people achieve greatness among the nations, the gods are a burden. The gods of Babylon are idols, and if the worshippers wish to move their idols, they need to carefully load them upon wagons. These idols are heavy. One false move, one slip, and an idol could crush a worshipper to death. Once the gods have been loaded, animals are needed to pull the cart. And with every step, the animal grows weary at the phenomenal weight they must pull. These gods are powerless. Far from being able to deliver their people, they tire them out before the fight has even begun. Once the nation is defeated, well, the idols themselves will be carried off into captivity. Unable to save themselves, they can't help those who worship them. But in contrast to this, we have Yahweh. When Israel is taken into captivity, Yahweh transcends over creation. It was he who caused the nations to come against his people, which means he isn't available for capture, because he plans every step Israel's enemy takes. They may be Israel's enemies, but the nation belong to God. And so since God has raised Babylon up to take Israel into captivity, then it's well within God's power to raise up Cyrus to deliver his people. Now if Isaiah 46 has exposed the weakness of Babylon's idols, Isaiah 47 attacks Babylon directly. When Babylon takes the people of Israel into captivity, they will be doing the will of God. It will be God's means by which he punishes his people. But Babylon will not attribute their success to anyone but themselves. The language they will use to describe the success will be language that should only ever be attributed to God. Their achievements will cause them to declare themselves as immortal and self-existent. But Isaiah makes it clear that it will be their pride that will be their downfall. Notice in chapter 47, in verses 8 and verses 9, twice they say, I am, and there is no one besides me. 
This is a phrase that normally we would only read on the lips of Yahweh. One example is back in 45 verse 5. Now whether they literally say the phrase makes no difference. The point is their attitude is that they believe themselves to be in the place of God. And so in verse 8, they believe they're unable to lose those who are close to them because of their power. And God responds to them and says, despite your sorcery, you will succumb. Then in verse 10, since there's no one greater than they, they decide that they know what is good and what is evil. After all, now there's no one to hold them account, hold them to account. Because as they say, I am, and there is no one besides me. To which God responds, you will be destroyed. And just as you believe there is no one greater than you, there will be no one to deliver you. This is a precarious place they find themselves in. As soon as you place yourself in the place of God, when you declare yourself self-existent and claim to be immortal, when you usurp God, well then, God moves aside and leaves you to your own devices. As we've said, this is an unfortunate place to be. Who then will be there left for you to cry out to? Who will there be left to deliver you when you need deliverance? All of which sets us up for Isaiah 48. Bel and Nebo, the Isles of Babylon, are no match for Yahweh. They did not cause the fall of Jerusalem. And since they did not cause the fall, they're unable to stand in the way of God when he sets out to rehabilitate Jerusalem. The idols of other nations cannot speak. If they could speak, well, they're powerless to make happen what they declare. But Yahweh is completely distinct from every other would-be God. In 3 to 5, God explains why he told the people what he did so many years before. Let's just stop for an example. If we go back to Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants will be taken to a foreign land and they will serve as slaves for 400 years. But then God will punish those that afflict his people and he will bring them out to the land that was promised. Of course, here God speaks of Egypt and the Exodus. But why did God tell this to Abraham so far before it happened? Well, of course, we could give multiple answers to that question. But the one given in Isaiah 48 is, since they've been told, they wouldn't be able to attribute what happened to any idol that they may wish worship. That God declared it means that God must have then caused it. But then in 48 verses 6 to 8, God explains how he has held back something until now. 
And what is held back is the exile to Babylon and the redemption by Cyrus. He brings them something new, which he hasn't told them before. Something that they couldn't know. Because only God could tell them. And he tells them now so that when it happens, they will know God is the only one who can deliver them. Why will God do this for Israel? Well, he answers the question in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 48. So a quick look. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why does God do it for Israel? Well, it's not because they deserve it. It isn't because Israel is good. The very opposite, in fact. Rather, God has chosen Israel to reflect his glory, a task they failed. However, they do represent God. And since God made, made a covenant with Israel, his reputation is associated with Israel. Despite the sin of Israel, God, well, he must deliver them to demonstrate his mercy and further distinguish himself from the other gods. So that the world will know the truth about God. Yes, he judged them and they were punished. But that was in order that he could deliver them. God will not be identified along with all the other gods who are unable to deliver their worshippers. God will distinguish himself from every other because there is no one besides him and he will not give his glory to another. But that God is the creator of the whole world means he will not limit his deliverance to Israel. Throughout the book of Isaiah we've continued to see that God's deliverance is for the nations. Bel and Nabo were the gods of Babylon. But Yahweh is the God of every nation. Yes, represented by Israel, but so that Israel, acting as God's priests, could speak of his mighty works and proclaim his deliverance to all the nations. And it's a deliverance that's available to all. It's a deliverance that isn't limited by nation, nor is it limited by time. Which means it's available now for all who have put their trust in the Lord's servant. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken in the past of your mighty deeds. And we thank you that we see now how your mighty deeds have been fulfilled through your Son. We thank you that there is deliverance, both for your people and for the Gentiles. And we thank you that deliverance can be found through the Lord's servant, your Son, Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions. Amen. 
I mentioned earlier on, there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make any comments in light of what we've been thinking about. Any questions, comments, or thoughts? Well, everyone's carefully looking at their, well, not everyone, but some people are carefully looking at the Bible. So I'm assuming either you're not wanting to catch my eye contact or... Yes, Victor? Verse 3, which chapter? Okay, so chapter 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. The question is, why did he speak of all the remnants at this point? Good question. Um, so, Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so I guess, strictly speaking, the exile hasn't yet taken place. So, but Assyria has attacked Israel. So I guess there's a couple of options. Either the remnant refers to sort of the leftover tribe of Judah. Or it could be written in anticipation of the exile taking place. So although the exile hasn't taken place, this is intended for those to read back in exile. And those who are the remnant would read it to know that the end would come. And just to, I guess, to be thorough. So the remnant refers to the left, uh, the sort of people who are left over or still survive who will be who will return to uh, from exile? Is that okay? Any more or not? Quite happy not to answer any questions. Okay then. Oh, hey, you're not allowed to answer questions. Ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, is 
an interesting idea, this idea of um, uh, the idols being a burden. So life is only 46 to the people, and in contrast to God and individuals. Can you say a bit more about that in terms of just how, it's an interesting idea that the, because you thought like all gods are supposed to help people, but actually they're not just neutral, they're actually are burning on the walls. Interesting, it kind of seems to add to that contrast of how not only useless they are, but actually they're weighing people down. Yes. That could be a wider question in terms of ideology today. Just it just feels like quite interesting Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess, well, I guess the thing is, one of the things I guess probably is worth exploring is this idea that um, we don't. You know, our contemporary society doesn't worship idols as it's described here. So none of none of our friends have got statues. Well, they may have statues in the garden, they may have statues in the house, but it's more sort of to uh, paraphernalia. It's more to make the house look nice or, or whatever. You know, you can buy from garden centres little Buddhas and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, other than that, we don't worship idols in this sort of way. But one of the things we've talked about in the past is that idolatry doesn't begin when the goldsmith or the stone masonry starts um, shaping their or fashioning their idol. Um, it's when the person collects his gold in chapter 46, verse 6, and asks for the goldsmith to start making it, that it's already been formed in their mind. And so idolatry is something that's conceived in one's mind and it's all related to um, attributing things that are gods to someone else. So when you worship or put your confidence in anything else other than God, you're basically um, thinking wrongly about God and attributing his attributes to other people. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting is that people would say, we don't do that. Um, what they would say is that we don't believe there is a God. Which we can then do one of two things with that. We can then say, well, let me take you to Isaiah 47. Because in Isaiah 47, Babylon was saying, despite the fact they worship gods, well, I'm immortal. I'm self-existent. I don't need a deliverer to deliver me. I can deliver myself. Which, as we explored in the sermon, that puts us in a very precarious situation because actually we can't deliver ourselves. I mean, even things like um, stand up to cancer, which is a wonderful thing in as far as they're trying to raise money to uh, put an end to cancer. But it there's a futility to it. Not that I'm saying we can't put an end to cancer, although it still seems a long, long way off from doing that. But the fact that if we were to bring an end to cancer, there is something that would fill that void. You know, we are not immortal. We are not self-existent. We cannot deliver ourselves. Death is final. Death is in the world. So 
Why that puts us in a very precarious situation is because we believe we can deliver ourselves, which means we don't raise our eyes to heaven and call out to the one who does provide deliverance, the one who is self-existent, the one who is mortal, the one who can legitimately say, I am and there is no one besides me. That's where our salvation is to be found. So when we distort our view of God, we leave ourselves in that precarious situation where there is no one to deliver ourselves but from ourselves. Now I know I did say this, that's one of two options, but I've completely lost my train of thought and I've said quite a bit, so I might stop there, if that's okay. Oh, go on Susie. Yeah, so the question is simply, um, is this the first time the people have heard that they'll go into exile in Babylon? Um, and it, yeah, so I do think within the confines of Isaiah, I mean, we've heard it already within conf- Isaiah. Um, we may read it elsewhere, but in the same timeline. Um, but yeah, no, so I, I think as I understand it, um, and I would say it was a nice compar- comparison with Genesis 15. Genesis 15, it is effectively, it's not quite an exile, but there's that taken into slavery or captivity and then deliverance from it. Um, and then we're to understand that once they come out, well, having, oh, okay, maybe I'm trying to think now. Um, in Deuteronomy, I would say it's been alluded to. Um, so blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28. And also now, I'm thinking, in uh, King Solomon's prayer. 1 Kings, 8. 1 Kings 8. Thank you. So I think in those cases, there's an allusion to if and when, or when the people do rebel, they'll be punished. And that will mean going to another nation. But I guess what we do get in Isaiah is the specifics. So it talks about, I mean, I don't think Cyrus has yet been mentioned by name, but he will be in the next chapter maybe, or that's coming up. Um, But now we have the specifics of, so Deuteronomy and 1 Kings 8 allowed for the fact that it could happen if they rebelled, an expectation they should do, and if when they did rebel they were to pray towards a temple, but then the specifics are given uh, that it is going to happen and who is going to do it and where the deliverance will be found. So, yeah, I think so. Okay, that's three, so let's leave it there.